Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Vikings are one of those groups that, kind of like pirates or Templars, sometimes seem more fictional than historical. We're familiar with the idea of the horned helmets, the dragon boats, and the berserker warriors. But how much of that is based in reality, and how much has been created through fiction? Today, we're going to look at who the Vikings were and why they gained such a fearsome reputation. Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Paul McGowan. Hey. How's it going? It's going good. That's good. It's been a while since you've been on. I know. It's been a very long time. Glad to have you back on. Thank you. Uh, And we decided to talk about Vikings today. Yeah, by popular support. I'm not sure. I think we came up with that one ourselves. Oh. We did look at the popular support list. Right. And ended up settling on this instead. Oh, cool. But um, Good for us. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. But I don't think either of us knew exactly what we were getting ourselves into when we picked this. No. It's been a it's been a bit of a journey. I won't no, lie to you. I was gonna watch that History Channel Viking show to to <laughs> kind of prep, but I, I did not. I've never actually watched it. I think I've uh, I've come very close on a number of occasions and just... Yeah, I know that Josh Donaldson was in an episode. Was he really? And I still was not interested enough to go watch it. What was he doing on there? Uh, he was being a Viking. I assume that he got killed. I I mean, he wasn't. It was like a one-time thing. He must just really love the show and pulled yeah, some strings. Yeah, I think his, his hair just kind of naturally lends itself to looking. He he does look like, like a, a 10th century brutish warrior, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he kind of does. Huh. I did not know that. I'll have to look up that exact tiny clip on YouTube sometime. <laughs> I did actually watch the the one on Netflix though. I forget what it's called, but it was it was very good actually. I have not seen that one either. I'll have to look up the name. I, I should have remembered and popped it in the notes before we started recording because I knew it was going to come up. But it it takes takes place in a very specific segment of time in uh, in England with uh, with a Viking invasion. It was, it was you know I'm not going to call it accurate because it's you know it's it's <laughs> historical drama and let's face it that's turned into code for just gratuitous everything yeah but i wasn't mad at it i enjoyed it yeah did you see marco polo it, i watched three quarters of an episode and couldn't it didn't grab me sure I don't know. it's it's a lot like a viking version of marco polo <laughs> where okay. it's just kind of like yeah maybe it's kind of close but we'll we'll get somewhere in the area and then just go buck wild Right, Anyways. it's not it's not it's not a true story. It's based on a true story. Yeah, yeah. It's probably more based on a true story than the Marco Polo one is to be fair. Right. It actually follows it relatively well, but um yeah, it's it's uh it's not a documentary, let's say that. 
So I think I think really where where some of this topic falls apart is in a really really simple basic question, which is what is a Viking? Yeah, what is a Viking? I was I was asking you. I was hoping you could. Oh, uh, oh, it's uh, a guy with a pointed metal hat with okay. horns. Okay. And a big beard. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And a sword. Okay. And uh, he 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 lives on a boat. Okay. It's probably not a houseboat, but uh, you know. Sure. Um, and uh, he he pillages and, uh, and and raids and all that good Viking stuff. Okay. Some of that was really bad, but most of it was pretty good, actually. <laughs> uh, oh, and he's he's Swedish or similar part of the globe. Okay. From up there. From up there. From up there. All right. Well, let's let's put to, put to bed misconception number one. Okay. No, no pointed helmets. Okay. Sorry, there's never been an actual pointed helmet ever found. Oh man, it's a terrible idea. Think about it. Well, I, I mean, if you want to headbutt a guy, it's not. Okay. So n- number one, <laughs> headbutting is probably not the best idea. It's yeah, not a no. great battle tactic. Number two, let's let's take two people, MythBuster style. Okay. Thought experiment. Put them beside each other. Okay. Yeah. We're going to put them beside each other. One of them is going to have a Viking helmet with the horns. Yeah. And the other one is going to have just like a normal helmet. Same as a Viking helmet, kind of bullet shaped, but no horns. Okay. Okay. And we're going to take, let's say like a, like a mace, like a good solid club. And we're going to swing it at their heads. Yeah. Okay. So bullet head guy. The, the shape of the, the helmet is going to kind of help to deflect it off, right? It's going to still right. get hurt. It's going to sting. But it's gonna it's gonna bounce away. And you're saying the horns are gonna help the mace like stick in the head. Yeah, it's it's a it's a giant catch. Like it's 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 helping people hit you. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, but it looks cool. Experiment number two. You are fighting a guy and you've both lost your weapons, and it's down to like maybe you got like a knife or something like that. And you've got a bullet-shaped helmet, and he's got a horn-shaped helmet. And you guys are like wrestling at each other, trying to get in some stabs. Where are you going to grab onto his horn-shaped helmet? Well, I mean, I assume that the helmet is very loosely about his head. And if you pull the horn, it's going to come off. Okay, so either he has no helmet or you've got him in like the greatest hold ever invented because he's got literal handles on his head. Right. Whereas you, you're fine. Either your helmet is hard to get off. Well, in both cases, it's really hard to get off. Right. But if you have the bullet-shaped helmet, you kind of look like a dork. A safe and alive dork. And in <laughs> fact, most Viking helmets were actually bullet-shaped. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All the ones that we found anyways. No, I, I think the real problem with Viking is that it's not really like a... It's not an ethnicity. It's not a, you know, it's not a, a political affiliation. It's not even a religious affiliation. Loosely, you could call it an ethnic affiliation, but even then only barely. In general, what we're talking about when we're talking about Vikings is raiders. Viking means pirate or raider. Okay. And you can't really be a Viking if you're not in the process of being on those longboats as part of a war party pillaging or or going to battle. Right. It's kind of like saying we're going to do an episode on, I don't know, pioneers in the american west like you can be a pioneer sure like it's not it's not as though there's no no such thing as a viking but saying that you're a pioneer doesn't tell us anything about you as a person other than the fact that you're 
for whatever reason, trying to move further west in the American continent and are doing so, you know, as one of the first groups of people to do so. Right. But how you go about it, why you're doing it, where you come from, uh, all of those things aren't really encapsulated in the fact that you're a pioneer. And you stop being a pioneer as soon as you settle down and start a community, start a family, start farming. Now you're a farmer, not a pioneer. Right. It's almost a it's it's a it's a transient state of 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 existence. Yeah. Although, I mean, but it's one of well, I mean, I pioneer is one of those things where like it's such a such a brave, such a defining thing for a person to do that. I think if you're if, you know, once a pioneer, always a pioneer. That's not true. No, no, I don't think so. I feel like I mean, maybe like in spirit, but that's like a very like poetic way of looking at it. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's the same with, I, I mean, even something as simple as a pirate, right? Yeah. Like you can, you have to be kind of in this, this you have to be in the business of pirating other ships to be a pirate. You can be from several different countries. You can have other things in your future from legitimate military roles to, you know, penniless and, and marooned on a deserted island uh, or even just go straight back home. So I guess it depends because... I guess it's the same way that some people do a job for a number of years and then even after they retire kind of define themselves by that job. And there are other people who that job is just a part of their life. I guess. I, I, I mean, I suppose. But I mean, it's it's more of a it's more of a role or a way of life than it is an actual group. Like you wouldn't have. Right. You know, you wouldn't have people back home also defining themselves as Vikings any more than you would necessarily have you know, people back home in Italy defining themselves as merchants on the Silk Road because they're not actually on the Silk Road carrying goods. Right. Right? Like, it's it's a thing that you do more than it is, like, who you are. Okay. Now, obviously, that has to, you know, kind of come from somewhere because there has to be something that differentiates Vikings from other various raiders that exist in the Middle Ages, right? Yeah. So, really, what you're looking for is, is raiders from uh, the Scandinavian region. So, that makes up basically what would now be uh, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. They would all share, at this point in time, a common tongue, which is Old Norse. That would eventually differentiate into a number of different languages. Some people get a little bit upset about calling Old Norse uh, like a linguistic ancestor of, of uh, Swedish. They say, that, say that's uh, Eastern Old Norse, but people get really funny about linguistics, so okay. don't worry about that too much. It's not really that important. The point is that even today, those languages have a lot of enough words that are similar to one another that you could probably understand someone speaking the other language if you're fluent in one. Right. Maybe not great, but enough to get by. They were very, very similar at that point in time. And people from that entire region would be able to speak to each other uh, fluently without any trouble. Right. Okay. One more thing when we're talking about like, like preconceptions about Vikings mm -hmm. is you mentioned Norse. And that makes me think of like, Norse mythology so whether I don't know whether they were informed by Norse mythology or whether they were the creators of it so to speak or so so that's another thing where right Norse we're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on Norse mythology today it's it's endlessly fascinating I love it as a as a topic but it's not exactly it's not exactly historically relevant right yes they would have been believers in what we would call North, Norse mythology now. It's also worth pointing out, though, that so were 
a lot of various Germanic tribes that weren't necessarily from the Scandinavian region. That's a that's a pagan uh, religion that kind of came out of that region in various waves as various, in a, in a very broad sense, Germanic tribes came out of that Northern European region in the form of, you know, the Goths coming through, all, all these tribes that have come through at different times, usually because of political strife at home or, you know, uh, uh, climate change, all sorts of reasons. A lot of times we don't really know. We don't know anything about them at all until they show up on the borders of the Roman Empire or something like that. Right. But the 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 thing about pagan religions like that is we tend to think of them as very like structured. You know, the whole idea of the pantheon and like the you know the the, the twelve primary gods of the Romans and and things like that. When in reality, you know, the day to day of somebody who's living in that society, it's a lot fuzzier than that certain gods that are more or less the same will have different names in different regions or will have different there, there will be uh, different patronages for different concepts that's where you get into having two or three different sun gods in the same pantheon and, and, right. and it doesn't quite match up properly the other thing to know about norse mythology is that a lot of what we know about it comes from a man named or or we believe it comes from him anyway named snorri sturluson who was a writer in Iceland in the 13th century, which is much later than what we're talking about here. Okay. And there's a few things that you need to know about Snorri. Number one, we're not entirely sure if he's the guy who wrote the the works that we're going to be talking about, specifically the Edda, which is where most of our uh, information on the the Norse pantheon comes from. And uh, the one that we're going to be focusing on today, which is the, uh, the Heimskringla, which is a, a document of of basically uh, Norse royalty, like biographies of various Norse kings. The problem with this is that he's writing it 300 plus years after these things actually take place. He himself is a Christian, so he's actually very dismissive of a lot of the cultural aspects of, of Norse life. So, I mean, in, in the 13th century already, he's already positing that somebody like Odin was just a chieftain of a tribe who was really dominant in the region and that after he died his his grave became a site of of veneration which in time became worship and and his status as a as a powerful man became one of a god that's that's a pretty big idea for somebody in you know the 1200s 1300s but it also tells you that what he's writing about he's not necessarily all that well informed about or attached to he's got a very specific outlook on it sure but he's where a lot, like a lot of our information is going to be coming from. Can you hit me with that name again? Snorri? Snorri, S-N-O-R-R-I. I might be saying that wrong. Okay, what's his last name? Uh, it's Sturluson. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like a Viking name. Well, Iceland is going to come up quite a bit because in a lot of ways, Iceland best preserves Norse culture from that period of time. Okay. Um, and we'll get into the reasons why as we go. But... Yeah, this this whole idea of going going Viking, um, because it's it's a thing you do, not a not who you are necessarily. It tends to manifest as going to these places, you know, raiding, realizing they have it better there than you do back at home, and kind of settling in and going native. So a lot of times when we're talking about Vikings, what we're talking about is Norse culture and the spread of Norse culture throughout Europe. And usually the way that that looks is as soon as you stop actually Viking or going a Viking, you kind of stop being 
a Viking and you start being a local. And in a lot of cases, that ends up meaning that you stop being Norse as well. They don't tend to bring a lot of cultural stuff along with them. And, you know, that ends up manifesting in the form of a lot of Vikings settled in Scotland. Basically, the farther north you go in Scotland, even if you consider yourself, you know, ethnically Scottish, the farther north you go, the higher and higher percent chance there is that there's some Norse blood in your in your family tree somewhere to the point where it's more likely that you do than don't. That is fascinating right off the bat. Okay, so so was the original plan when these Vikings went to like like let's say raid a village in Scotland, was the original plan to bring stuff back? Yeah, in then, general. And then they just stayed. Well, let's let's talk about why you go Viking, I guess. Right, is, right. Is the the next kind of logical step which is that these are the outcasts these are the fringes of society okay if you're doing fine at home like i mean i think it's really important to to kind of consider that when you're doing well for the most part most societies don't glorify battle to the point where it's like yeah if you live a good comfortable life you know at home with your farm you've got more than enough to feed yourself and your family you don't just pick up and leave that for really uncertain activities like you know sailing across the north sea which is really dangerous raiding against people who might have weapons of their own and fight back and kill you yeah uh, of maybe not finding anything of coming back empty-handed which makes sense but i guess my question is so uh, i mean were these guys totally outcast or were they like were they you know trying to bring back goods or whatever to families who were then waiting for them forever these people are opportunists so sometimes they'll have people at home, but generally the people that are being sent away are people who are superfluous to keeping the family unit together. Okay. So this isn't like a first son type thing. This is like a fourth son type thing. Okay. Gotcha. If we put it in those terms. Yeah. Let's rewind one more time. There's a few things happen at the beginning of what we would call the Viking Age. The Viking Age is generally pegged at around the late 8th century to the 11th century. Obviously, people from Scandinavia are already sailing around in the North Sea before this. This is not a, a new thing at all. But where it starts, as often happens with raiding type societies, is from accounts from outside. Specifically, there was a, uh, there was a 793 raid on an abbey on an island uh, just off the coast of England called Lindisfarne. And what was so shocking about this is that Pretty much everywhere else in England or, or in, in Europe in, uh, as a whole, you have raiders. There's always raiders. That's, that's just a part of life when you're talking about the period in between, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire. And I, I mean, we're really even talking about the Holy Roman Empire just barely beginning to be established. Yeah, so, or like the era after like 2150, after nuclear destruction. Exactly. When you're in like the Boston area. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Fallout is a good game, Paul. It's all good. The thing that differentiates them is that normally, if you have a raiding party coming to your village, you go to the church because that's sacred ground. And there's just this unspoken understanding that you don't raid a church. Even if you're not the strongest believer, that's just, you, you don't mess with sacred ground. It's just, it's bad news. These Vikings had no problem with that. In fact, they knew that all the best stuff was at abbeys and churches because... Specifically because no one thought that anyone was brave enough to go in there and take it. 
it's how they saw it. So they went and got what they figured, well, maybe didn't deserve, but certainly wanted. And this terrified British monks. Why shouldn't it? Because they're they're used to being completely untouchable. Yeah. Uh, it, it kind of generated this whole, like, this really common prayer, which was uh, free us from the fury of the Northmen, which is pretty great. Yeah, it sounds like it's right out of Game of Thrones or something. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, Northmen was a really common epithet from these people because they are coming from further north than Britain when you kind of, like, maps get really screwy when we talk about this just because everyone's from so far north that, you know, maps really badly distort things generally the further away from the equator the more distorted right and things are often a lot closer together than you would think from looking at a map especially when we get into talking about uh some of their further travels to iceland and greenland and things like that right but scandinavia is slightly north of of the british isles to the point that sutherland like the top like the tip of scotland is the furthest north part of scotland but it's south of Norway, so that's where it gets its name. Right. Anyways, there's a lot of stuff going on around 793. We've got Charlemagne actively consolidating the Holy Roman Empire, which puts a lot of pressure on the surrounding areas. I mean, he executes a, a campaign of battles called the Saxon Wars. Saxony is a, uh, or Old Saxon is a is a an area on the the Danish peninsula. You know okay. how Denmark's just this like little tiny peninsula jutting up. Uh, off the coast of of what's now Germany. Um, And it's actually just south of Norway. So about a third of the way up that peninsula is what used to be Saxony. Now, the Saxons had started moving into the British Isles uh, soon after the Romans left, you know, in the uh, early 400s, I believe. They saw a power vacuum. They decided to fill it. Other people from that peninsula had started moving across in the 6th and 7th centuries, the, the Angles and the Jutes. You've heard of the Battle of Jutland? yes jutland is the the tip the northern tip of the danish peninsula the the angles are from the middle uh the angles are actually going to end up giving england its name angle land so they're they're already crossing over into into britain that peninsula is somewhat inhabited but it's inhabited by norse the saxons are more german than they are norse and at some point in danish history they built a wall. I don't know if they made the Saxons pay for it. <laughs> uh, it's called the Danewerk. Uh, Danish work, I guess, is the, the literal translation. It, it, it had already been uh, started being called Denmark at this point. Mark, anytime you see that, is, is land, basically, Okay. in, in Old Norse. So it was the, the legend is that it's uh, discovered by a guy named Dan. Which is the least Norse <laughs> name that I've ever come across. Danesland. Dansland. Yeah. Dan- Denmark. That's where that comes from. Wow. But there's there's this this Danewerk across the uh, across the neck of of uh, Denmark, about two thirds uh, of the way, um, or sorry, a third of the way north into the peninsula. And Charlemagne's already executing this this uh, this war against the Saxons that haven't yet moved to to England. And he gets up to the Danewerk and doesn't really get much further. It's actually a pretty formidable set of, of defenses. There's a there's a point on the peninsula where it gets fairly narrow and they just set up a series of forts along with a, a basic uh, wall in between to make it as defensible as possible. It doesn't quite go all, all along the way, but the western part is all swamp that you can't really get a, an army through anyways. Right. So it, it cuts off the main road. 
Can I, is any of that wall still there? Yeah. Oh, sweet. In fact, that wall has been updated so many times throughout history that the last time it was actually actively used in a military campaign was 1864. Wow. Yeah. Um, it looks a lot different now than it did then, obviously. It's been upgraded yeah. a few times. It's now technically a ruin. But there were plans actually at one point in World War II of like updating it into like an anti-tank oh, uh, no emplacement. It never happened. But the good news is that, that means that you can actually go and still see the Danverks. So, you know. Yeah. Anyways, even though they, uh, Charlemagne didn't actually break into Denmark, it still put a lot of pressure on the Danes uh, in a number of ways. I mean, they've got Saxon refugees coming through the wall that they've got to now incorporate into their society, right? You've got, you know, the threat of, of military conquest from the south looming because that's a really uncertain set of circumstances. You've got religious pressure because a lot of what Charlemagne was doing was Christianizing Europe. He was a he was a Christian king, and he was fighting for Christianity against pagan Germans and Franks. So they're up there with their Norse religion going like, yeah, they keep sending these missionary guys out. And just want to get rid of them. Get out of here. They come to our door every Sunday. <laughs> they won't go away. Uh, I invited one in once. She stayed for a half hour. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Yeah, exactly. It seems like small stuff, but Denmark's also a really small place. And, and the spot where Christianity kind of butts up against, you know, German and Scandinavian paganism is it's there's a lot of friction there. There's a, a lot of friction there, specifically because the Christianity of Charlemagne is one of a man who's already taken the Christian faith and incorporated a lot of the more, shall we say, severe aspects of Germanic life where, you know, tends to be kind of okay with ignoring the whole thou shalt not, thou shalt not kill bits of the Bible. Right. Yeah, in favor you of, mean that part anyways. Yeah, well, you know. In, in favor of spreading Christianity as much as possible. There's this weird kind of compromise that happens in early Christianity where it's kind of like, okay, do we keep this really local and really true to its roots, but like have a really hard time getting any sort of momentum? Or do we make small concessions to help people kind of roll Christianity into their everyday lives? And, you know, understanding that it's maybe not exactly the way it was intended, but hoping that in the long run, it means that we can bring people back to its original intent. And they kind of opt for the second one, go for a numbers game. And that's the Christianity that Charlemagne is bringing into play. And that's the religion that has no problem standing toe to toe with Odin and Thor. It's a little bit different. So you've got this, this, this expansion from Charlemagne that's putting a lot of pressure on all of Europe, really. You've got sort of this internal religious turmoil that's caused by, you know, these few Christians that start popping up within society that, you know, Christianity is a very evangelical religion. They're all about, you know, spreading the news, right? And that's a really odd thing for a pagan culture to encounter because, you know, by nature, when you live in a pagan culture, you're kind of in this sort of you-do-you kind of headspace when it comes to religion. Sure. Like, if you at your place, you have a shrine to Thor, but I have a one to Odin at my place, it's fine. It's not a big deal. We're not disagreeing in any way. It's just maybe those aspects speak to us a little bit differently in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. And it's, it, and it's fine. And a lot of times when pagan religions encounter Christianity really early on, they see it as like, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I guess there's one more God kicking around. That's fine. Sounds like a cool guy. And they kind of only realize what they're getting into when these missionaries are like, no, 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 you have to 
like the all the other ones are not true like you got to get rid of them that's the point of contention so you also get a lot of people converting but not like really converting what they're doing is they're inviting the christian god into their pantheon and you've got your thor shrine in your place and i've got my jesus shrine in my place and it's still cool until they realize the whole exclusivity bit of this whole thing. Yeah. And it causes a lot of friction, largely because that's not a conflict that anyone's really run into before this. Even when you get diverse pagan cultures running into each other, a lot of the time what you see rather than any sort of conflict is this initial kind of matchup, like this this um, almost like a translation dictionary where it's like, oh, I see what's going on. Your raw is like my Apollo. Yeah, we see eye to eye. eye, to eye. It's just a different name for the same guy. Right. Right? Like it just kind of it fits together fairly naturally. And when it doesn't fit together naturally, they kind of make it work somehow. Yeah. But usually like the most that that'll involve is a little bit of expansion. It's usually not about this exclusivity that comes with monotheism. And then you get climate change. You thought you could come in here and not talk about it for a day. <laughs> Don't get off the hook that easily. There was something called the medieval warm period from about 800 to about 1300. Okay. Which you'll notice is right over the timeline that we're talking about here. And at that point in time, the entire world was as much as a degree warmer than it is right now. Damn. Mind you, completely natural causes and is followed up very quickly by the medieval ice age or the little ice age. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. No. Yep. It was not good times for Europe. But this whole warm thing, they were digging. But it had a lot of the same effects that we're talking about today when it comes to climate change, especially in the northern climates. Because climate change let them do two things. Number one, grow a lot more stuff. Because, hey, it's warmer weather. This is great. But that leads to more food, which means population boom, which means that all of a sudden they're getting kind of overcrowded. Right. It also means that the the coastlines rise, like the the sea level rises, meaning that the coast comes inland, which means that there is literally less room in Scandinavia for people. And all of a sudden, they've got too many people, which is where you get people kind of forced out for whatever reason. Okay. Because when you're in exile in a place where 50% of the land is used, that's cool. You go and find some unused land. When you're made in exile in a place where 100% of the land is used, where do you go? To the boats. You got to leave. You got to find something else. And probably what that means is that any of the villages that are you know, neighbors are well enough defended by people like you that you don't really feel like it's a good bet taking those places. But hey, you heard about these Orkney Islands over off the coast of Scotland that's full of a bunch of monks and farmers. Uh, and I hear sweet pickings over there. Maybe we give it a shot. Maybe it doesn't work out. I don't know, but we're desperate. And so you go Viking. Wow. So it was a, so it was a land and a resource thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and a clash of cultures issue. If you find yourself in a place where you're in the religious minority, you might not feel necessarily welcome in your community anymore. Right. Or your community might literally reject you for those reasons. Because as we were saying, monotheism isn't necessarily the most inclusive thing. Yeah. Okay. So I think I, I think I kind of like missed, not missed, but so, so when Charlemagne came and, and, and when these, uh, sorry, when the missionaries were trying to convert people to Christianity. So you're saying most people took it up then? No, 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 not right away. No? Uh, we're, we're talking about kind of down the line, but we're talking about a 300 year process here. Okay. Okay. Um, 
No, but that, that religious friction started right away. And some of the people that were expelled in the beginning would have been Christians. Right. Okay. Okay. But they're Norse Christians. And that means that they still have the Viking tradition. Right. And so you can still be a Christian and go raiding. Not every raid was against a monastery. Not every Viking was fine with trashing a church. But when you are a scared monk in England, you don't really differentiate because there's still Norsemen and they're still coming seemingly out of nowhere and they're still very, very dangerous. There was this whole literary tradition of of talking about the Vikings as being like the most dangerous, the most evil raiders that they had ever encountered when in reality, probably that willingness to violate the sanctity of a, of a church or a monastery was the biggest thing setting them apart from, you know, any other Germanic raiders. There are, there are pirates coming from everywhere at this point in time. The, the medieval warm period didn't only uh, affect Scandinavia. Yeah. There's a population boom all over the place at this point in time. It just happens that in other areas, you are also seeing a political consolidation, for example, with the Holy Roman Empire that tends to mitigate some of those factors. And it's a much larger chunk of land. I mean, Europe is big in the ninth century. Yeah. There's a lot of space for everybody. Okay. Can I ask maybe a complicated question? Absolutely. That's what we're Like the population boom tied to uh, being able to grow more. Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, is that just so like having more children because you can, because you can feed them? Or is that tied more to needing labor to help you produce more resources? I think that's not really a question you're going to get a single simple answer to. Right. I mean, when there is more food, like, I, I think I think one of the things that people don't necessarily realize about the way the families worked Anytime really before the last 75 years or so is that a lot of children died. Yeah. Infant mortality rates were astronomical and it was just a part of life. Between that, a lack of any really effective method of birth control. You know, the thing that's holding back Scandinavian population isn't people choosing to stop at a, a a nice pair of quiet boys it's that they couldn't support a larger family and of course right. they'd rather have more kids right because it okay. will help them with you know dealing with this time of prosperity it will help them with la- you know yeah labor on the farm but also protecting the home the more children you have the better insurance policy against infant mortality in terms of you really can't expect all of your children to make it past the age of five yeah there's a lot of reasons that people are going for large families at this point in time. The fact that all of a sudden it's working out is just messing with the system. They're not expecting that as an outcome of it. They've they've designed their lives around uh, a level of scarcity and still being able to maintain a population. Now it's easier to maintain a population and their lifestyle is causing a surplus of human beings. Gotcha. And in some ways it's great, but in other ways it puts a lot of pressure on the society as a whole. And so instead of dealing with undesirable people here, you send them away. Right. And so then so then it would be like like I know you said earlier like the fourth child. So like that, you know, the kid or the son who's not going to inherit the land and who can't find work making shoes or whatever else you do mm-hmm. in society at that time, so it would be those kinds of people. 
or criminals or people who have really no, like nothing else, like no family farm to in- inherit. It was basically any time a-, a community grew to a point where it could sustain itself and then grew a little bit more. Yeah. pieces would break off and right and when out. you say exiled you don't mean like formally exiled you just mean no it's closer to someone going uh going somewhere else to look for better opportunities right okay it's 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 a um it's a foray out it's not necessarily i mean occasionally it would be a punishment for crime but yeah. for the most part this is about this is about there's nothing left for me here i'm going to try my luck elsewhere yeah and so they would ba- break off into these little war bands. That was kind of the core unit of, of Viking raiders. And one person would call himself a king, but in reality, you know, he might have 20 guys under him. He might have 500 guys. Does, doesn't really matter. Right. It's just, he's calling himself a king because he's the leader. And, you know, you need a leader. But it was really ad hoc. Like, it was very loosely uh, organized. And eventually a war band would come across a place where they could settle down. And settling is always preferable to raiding. Like every single time. Right. Especially as you get older, especially if it's just plain easier, you just settle down. And, you know, maybe in a generation or two, if your children and grandchildren outgrow the place that you've settled, maybe they'll form a new war band of their own and go off a of Viking again. But until then, you just live here now. You're not really a Viking anymore. And sometimes that place was in Denmark or it was in a portion of Norway that hadn't been settled yet. Or in the Orkney Islands, which was basically at this point entirely Scandinavian. But sometimes it was in Ireland. And you would get married by basically raiding the locals. Um, Wow. And your children would grow up speaking both Irish and maybe maybe some Old Norse. And maybe your grandchildren wouldn't really understand Norse all that well. And they'd all have Irish names. And in three generations, no one would really remember that they're grandfather or great-grandfather had been a a viking because they just live here now wow i have another very important question for you Mm -hmm. you've been using the term viking as a verb yep like someone might go viking yep uh does that mean i can say that um uh you know tim left tim left to go vike no it's to go a viking it's like it's more like viking is the name for a raider vikinger okay and yeah, it doesn't, the, the ING doesn't make it a. Right. A, okay. Okay. It's, it's not a, it's not a gerund, okay. which is what you're talking about. Oh man. Here's my, here's my grammar creds coming to play. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I mean, it's not an important question, but I, I was, you know. You go Vikinging, I guess. Vikinging. Okay. Which isn't a thing that you say, which is why you say you go a Viking. Um, a Viking? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah. That sounds like it's out of an old sea chanty or whatever you call it it's great isn't it yeah it's, it's kind of fun to say yeah it makes it sound very uh like pleasant yeah like i'm pack sure a many songs were lunch and, and go a viking yeah exactly so i mean yeah they, we, we talked about Lindisfarne, where where that you know those first raids happened uh i mentioned the orkney islands uh the shetland islands were basically entirely norse and in those places they retained a lot of kind of norse tendencies for the most part kind of ended up being a blend of the two cultures but uh you know we also mentioned uh ireland dublin was a a viking settlement there i mean there might have been an ancient settlement in that same region but the city of dublin is of an old viking settlement it celebrated its hundredth or thousandth anniversary in i believe 1899 wow because it was settled 899 by vikings 
That's you think, crazy old. Yeah, but you think of it as being like this Celtic city that's been there, you know, since the time of the Druids, and that's absolutely not true. Yeah, it's it's not a it's not a Celtic place. It's not an ethnically Irish place. It was settled by Viking raiders. That's where they settled down. That's where they made their home. That's where they set up a a, a crude council for governance, and it grew from there. Wow. Scotland, we mentioned earlier, just full of full of Norse blood, and northern France. When Charlemagne died, there was a bit of a power vacuum. He had a couple, there, there were a couple emperors after him that kind of kept things together, but really the entire Holy Roman Empire was divided between a few sons. And Vikings are nothing if not opportunists. So we had massive raids on the northern coasts of France. And during the ninth century, Viking raiders went as far inland as Paris and they actually laid siege to Paris and it nearly fell, but they decided that the best thing to do rather than just kind of stick this one out is they went and actually negotiated with the Vikings and their leader who they called Robert. His name was, uh, Rolf Ragnvaldsson, which I am not going to say again, which, and, and they called him Robert. Yeah. Rolf, Robert, they, they, Right. You're going to see a lot of like Latinization of these names throughout. Right. He was made Robert of Normandy. He was give, given the fiefdom of Normandy, like the northern coast of France yeah. in 911, under two conditions. One is that um, he convert to Christianity. Okay. Which he basically said, yeah, sure, fine. Got baptized, whatever. He doesn't care, right? Because we talked about this. It's just... It's just another god for him and seems to make the Christians happy. So, yeah, good enough. And, I mean, over time, obviously, priests and missionaries are going to arrive. The The population is going to hear more and more about Christianity. And these people paying kind of lip service to it over generations are going to become bona fide Christians, which is kind of the long game that they're playing when they get someone to tacitly bat- or be baptized like this. Right. They know what they're doing. They, they understand what the actual terms are here, and they're playing the long game. The other condition was that he protect the northern coast of France from other Vikings. That's his job now is to keep all those other raiders out. Yeah. And at that point, like he, he immediately stops being a Viking because now he's he's lord of a fiefdom. He's not he's not raiding anymore. He was the most successful raider. He raided himself an entire principality. Right. Which is great, but now he's not a Viking. He's a Norman with which comes from Northmen. Yeah. Because he came from the north. He's 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 Norse. Norseman, Northman, Norman, it all comes from the same place. Right. But he stops being a Viking and now we're not talking about Vikings anymore. We're talking about Normans who are ethnically speaking Norse, who right. are well, actually I believe he was Danish, but you know, all all from very similar stock, right? Right. Um and and it's just he's not He's not a Viking anymore because he's not in the process of going a Viking. See, now the conversation that we had off the top makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Like at first. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now all of that makes a lot more sense that it was not in any way an end. It was just, it was a means to an end. Yeah. No one, no one really expected to spend their entire lives going a Viking. I mean, there is this sense of honor that's kind of built into the society where, you know, dying in battle is considered more honorable. 
um, the whole idea of uh, going to Valhalla after dying in battle, all of that stuff that you're kind of, you know, you've, you've kind of heard bits and pieces from Norse mythology about that's all there. That's real. Probably not in nearly as neat and, and organized a form as we hear about in the Edda from the 13th century. Right. But, you know, it exists there. But it's one thing to say that, you know, there's honor in dying in battle in that society and another to expect every single man in the society to actually die in battle when the the reality of, of experience for the vast majority of them is to live a quiet pastoral life. So you get into these two conceptions of Vikings. One is this old medieval view from foreign monks mainly of these brutish warriors who kind of descend from you know they, they they rise out of the waves seemingly from nowhere have no respect for the sanctity of religion plunder and kill and rape and then disappear into the waves um and then you have this other one that's really been pushed really heavily in the last hundred years or so where it's kind of like no actually they were really peaceful pastoral people you know mainly they farmed you know they'd spend part of their year going off a of viking and they'd, they'd return to their farms the reality lies somewhere in the middle. Like, yeah, the majority of Norse people at this point in time were living that life. Um, the majority of them didn't hang their shields on the side of the, the warship and and either row or sail off to um, some random point, hoping that there's a monastery there to raid. Right. But the people who were doing that were brutes. Like, there's no question about that. Yeah. They were horrible, horrible people. It's just that that's not sustainable so then there were some people who would find that new place and settle down and then still go out a viking yeah but you would see it less and less as you go right it's like that was that was the exception as opposed to the rule yeah absolutely these are these are people who left their home because there wasn't anything there for them now they found a place where there are things there for them yeah they can start a family probably not by great means it's not exactly going to be a you know, a love story for the ages. But they're going to have the farm and they're going to have their cows and they're going to have their their bread and their, you know, just really simple, plentiful life, which is what they're looking for. So are there... Okay, so you said that, that sometimes they would they would come into a village and end up staying there. And, and you, you, you use the phrase, I think, like, become one of the natives, mm-hmm. so to speak. So how did that work? I mean, were there situations where they just came up to a town and they were like hey can we stay or or did they kind of like take the town by force and then because i'm wondering i mean like if you if you if you do kind of go and and pillage a place mm-hmm. um and then you decide to settle there like what is that coexistence like well i mean there's there's a few key pieces that you're missing number one would be that the first time that they roll up to a place they're not going to pillage it they're going to trade because they're there to take a look at what's there okay and trading is a lot safer than pillaging they find a place that's particularly weak, then sure, we'll we'll go in by force and take what's there. Because as I said earlier, they're nothing if not opportunists. But they're not they're not stupid and they're not bloodthirsty. They are greedy. And that's a very different thing than mindless animals. Right. And so, no, I mean, like, you know, that that raid that we talked about on on Linsfarn, like the they had started building coastal defenses the year before that raid happened. So even though that's the traditional start point of the Viking era, like they knew stuff was out there. 
there's Viking relics found in Scotland that date back before that, long before that. They were already there. It's just that it's the raids that stand out to outsiders, right? Because that's terrifying. Of course it stands out. And the, the points where, you know, peaceful Norsemen show up and they, they trade some, some pelts for some other goods, that, that doesn't really make the records most times. The other side of it is they're not really rolling up and asking to stay so much as they are enslaving all of the men and selling them off and then either, you know, or, or keeping them for their own slaves um, and then doing the same with the women and children, except sometimes taking the women as wives. This isn't a this isn't a gentle process, I you know it's it's not settlement so much as it is conquest and you know usurpation. Right. Okay. That's yeah. No. When you first said it, I just pictured yeah they come up to a place and 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 they decide to stay and they live in harmony with the people who are there already. But it's so the it's, it's kind of I'm going back and forth. The harmony in, takes in my a couple generations. <laughs> it really really does. And I mean I'm sure there are instances far between these two polar opposites i'm sure there's times when they find a a piece of uninhabited land and they decide to start a life there and really the only people who are um you know having horrible war crimes committed against them are the 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 women who they're bringing as slaves and wives that you know within a generation or two will have you know unfortunately their stories will have kind of died out as then all of a sudden it's though they were always there um and you know it's 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 always between those two those two poles i'm sure there are times where they did manage to integrate peacefully where they got to the trading portion of the you know reconnaissance they decided that this was too hard a target to take but decided that they liked it here and managed to integrate societally or socially i should say this is this is such a vast spectrum of of experiences and behaviors that we can't really put that simple a pin on it which is why I sound like I'm waffling every single time you ask me a question. <laughs> but yeah, it, it runs the gamut from, from incredibly okay. peaceful to uh, absolutely horrific and everything in between. I think to give us a bit of a, like an idea of that breadth of experience, I want to talk about some of the least well-known Viking stuff before we get into the more common stuff um, and talk about their contact with the byzantine empire and the islamic world cool but before we do that i think we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back we're back on hi 101 here with paul mcgowan yeah and took us a while to get to the heart of like what what being a viking is well it's so many different things it's so many different things and yet it's so nebulous compared to a lot of other you know it's not the same as like being a i don't know being a russian or like you know it's it's yeah it's it's kind of transient and it's kind of ill-defined and there's a lot of things that i talk about on this show that we have cultural conceptions of that are not exactly accurate yeah but not usually as bad as vikings but it's it's interesting because they certainly like you said they're not bloodthirsty they're just greedy so you said so so we were talking earlier about them kind of deciding to maybe stay at one of these villages that they come upon Mm -hmm. um and i was like oh that's that's really nice like they just want a place to call their own and and then 
you know, at the at the end of that, we get to the fact that like, no, but they would enslave the men and, and the women and the children and, and really kind of take over a place. Mm-hmm. And so they're not, you know, maybe swinging swords around as much as we think. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but they're, they're certainly kind of, I mean, they're d-ks. kind of. You, you could say that. Yeah. They're, they're. I, I'm not sure I normally say that on this podcast. I might have to we can go man. back and scrub it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I got a bleep noise. This is this is a professional. No, it's not. But I still got a bleep noise. But I mean, they're they're very. They're still not nice people. No, they're they're absolutely not nice people, and I think it's fallacious to ever categorize them as such. It, the problem the problem comes down to one of semantics when we're talking about Vikings, who are we talking about? Right. Because the people who are saying like, Oh no, no, no. They're, they're generally like pastoral, like, you know, normal peasants that you would see anywhere else in, in Europe. They're not really talking about the Vikings, you know? Yeah. But then the people who are talking about them as being mindless hordes of barbarians who, who, who think of nothing but bloodshed and, and battle are, you know, miscategorizing their, motivations and i think the best place that we can demonstrate just how versatile that that they can be in terms of of executing that that greed and that that opportunism is in the east because the vikings didn't just sail around in the north sea there were also a lot of them who looked to other prosperous parts of uh of the world for for opportunities and when we're talking about the relative hellhole that is ninth century Europe, you're you're talking the you know Asia Minor basically. Right. the The Asian world is the is is currently going through a, a golden era of prosperity and and intellectual advancement and and all of these amazing things, and the Vikings were too restless because i mean what we're really talking about when going a viking isn't necessarily going to battle but going to see what you can find right going to improve yourself in some way sometimes through battle but sometimes through other means what what they were doing was going out and and trying to find you know anything that can make things better for them and what they found in the east was both the byzantine empire and the islamic world the way that this kind of works is that the Swedish Vikings, which is is really more of a differentiation in terms of, of the, the geography that they originated from than necessarily major cultural or linguistic differences, but Swedish nonetheless. They went out and they, they founded a, a city called Novgorod, which is in Russia now, and used this as kind of a, a, a base for, for trade in Eastern Europe. These or th- this group of Vikings was known as the Rus, which means the rowers, because they had these long thin ships that they would they would row in pairs, right? Right. And it's actually it's from the it's from the Swedish uh, word that they're using. I mean, uh, even the the Finnish word now for uh, Swedes is based on this. It's it's something like rootsy or something like that, uh, but still rowers. The Rus. I have talked about extensively before because this is the group that would go on to conquer the city of Kiev under uh, Oleg in 882, which founds the state of Kievan Rus, which is the 
uh, basis of Russia. That's right. my very first episode, actually. This is this is where they come from. I mean, this 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 Viking named uh, Rurik goes out and founds uh, Novgorod in 862. 20 years later, I mean, they, they immediately find out about Kiev because they're you know, sailing down the, the river to find other opportunities, find, find this massive city, take it over for themselves, and use that as a basis of a, a, a trade route that covers that entire Eastern European area. It's not the only trade route that they find. They also find another one through uh, Bulgaria, through the city of Bulgar, that gets them to the Volga River. And they take the Volga River all the way down to the Caspian Sea. And from the Caspian Sea, they have access to the Islamic world. From there, they can get to traders who work with Persia, with the Arabian Peninsula, uh, with what is now Iraq. They've got access to all of these places and they themselves often go to these places to conduct trade themselves. So I know when we started talking, you said that these little uh, war parties mm-hmm. were, you know, it might be 20 people, it might be 500. Mm-hmm. So founding the town whose name I can't pronounce. Novgorod. Would that have been, I mean, maybe that was a larger party to start with, but then would other Viking war parties kind of come along or how did that work? Because yeah. this sounds like a big kind of undertaking. It's it's big enough. And I mean, again, you could kind of argue at the point of the founding of the city that anyone who's moving to Novgorod is no longer actually a Viking. Right. Which is, again, this this kind of paradox that we're going to keep running into, which is, you know, like when when I initially used that that pilgrim analogy, it's kind of like you can only be pilgrims as long as you have more land to move west on, right? Right. Um, but but because you're coming from kind of the same stock, like if a if a if a war party rolled up, mm-hmm. I mean, would they kind of be welcomed in? I, I'm sure there'd be tension there, but again, we're we're looking at no more tension necessarily than if a a um a, a group of well, from any of these Eastern European states, if any of them left from one place to another, they could choose to either submit to local law or they could choose to challenge it and see how things shook out. But, you know, Novgorod is going to continue to grow as a uh, a Rus city. Right. Started out founded by Rurik, who's, who's Swedish, but, you know, it... it it immediately starts taking on the flavor of the surrounding area because once again, war parties aren't made up of families exactly. They're going to be finding Slavic wives in the area, and sure. they use the, the the term wife um, very generously, in my opinion. But yeah, this this whole like this this idea of, of Viking traders in in Arabia, it's just it's just insane. But what they could do that nobody else had actually figured out how to do yet was navigate these two rivers, the, the Volga to get to the Caspian Sea and the Dnieper River to get to uh, the Black Sea, which is how they got to Constantinople. And the reason that they could actually navigate these, these rivers when no one else could was that their, their longboats, the way that they made them, were uh, light enough that you could portage with them. You had, I mean, it wasn't easy, but you could get all of the guys in the boat uh, out of the boat, get the boat pulled out of the water and carry it for a few kilometers until you got to the next place where it was safe to traverse the river. Right. There were something like seven different spots on the Dnieper River that no one else could uh, traverse because they're like waterfalls or serious rap- rapids or, you know, other obstacles that you just you can't take a boat through. Right. Um, 
And they went, that's okay, we'll just go around. Wow. How, I mean, do you know how long some of those portages were? Because I assume those longboats are not, I mean, I know you have a bunch of guys, but they're not light. We're talking like a few kilometers. And I think you might be overestimating the size of the boats that we're talking about here. Maybe. They're like... I mean, I know what a longboat is. I know it's not, you know, a huge... Yeah. Yeah. But seafaring vessels were not... Like even the ones that they're using to like cross the North Sea... They're not sophisticated boats. Right. They're not, they're not big. They're, they're made of really specific, like they're, they're made in a really specific manner that involves a lot more like layering planks, like over one another and then sealing them. Right. Rather than, you know, using like big massive chunks of wood as planks. Like they're using really thin, relatively thin planks, like a few inches thick and then layering them for, for making them waterproof and for giving them the proper which Earth. is still, and I guess I'm just going, I mean, I've portaged a, a, a little fiberglass canoe, mm-hmm. which is the lightest. Uh, oh, yeah, they're a couple can, of pounds. It's still do really, it right. it's still, I mean. Yeah. Oh, it's it's work, sure, but yeah. these are Vikings. These are Vikings. Um, but, but what is a Viking? <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, the, the other the other thing that we're talking about here is the, the, the promise of what lies at the end of the journey. Yeah. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Right. And the men that are doing this are not you know, doing it because the payoff is going to be, you know, meager. This is, this is well worth their time and their effort. And a lot of that lies in the fact that, well, no one else has actually made the effort. They find the journey too hard. And, you know, just purely based on supply and demand at that point, if they can do it, if they can be the only ones that can do it, just think what's, you know, just think what's waiting for them. Right. In the Islamic world, it was uh, silver. Most of the silver that you find from this era in Northern Europe is Islamic. A lot of it actually has Arabic written on it, sometimes even specifically Muslim inscriptions on the coins. Uh, but it is it is Muslim silver. It is, wow. it is from uh, from that part of the world. And what they're buying from them is sometimes things like, you know, furs and pelts, which are considered, you know, exotic luxuries. Um, you know, if you're from the Arabian Peninsula, you don't have a lot of animals like say bears or foxes or even squirrels that have that like really thick lush pelt yeah it's it's a luxury it's it's considered incredibly lavish Uh, and so they make some pretty good money off of that uh they also transport slaves all the way to the islamic world where as far as i could read it seems that it was more fashionable to have white slaves than black slaves guess is a thing okay yeah exactly i mean we're, we're talking about slavery none of it is pretty here yeah and so a lot of those little villages that we talked about them taking people away you've got them transla- uh, transported all the way to persia in some cases wow yep yeah i there was one story i was reading about a, a slave girl who was like re- refusing to you know, do any of the stuff that the the her her new masters were telling her to do and it turned out that she was a daughter of some uh irish chieftain or something like that who had been stolen at 15 and and sailed all the way to uh i, I think that one was in baghdad and wow. was royalty and so was refusing to you know scrub chamber pots and things like that yeah it's it's wild stuff like it, it's it's one of those things where vikings it's like okay well this is gonna be cold it's gonna be ships involved you know with giant war parties and dragon heads and all of that. And 
Maybe we'll land on some rock and raid a monastery, and that's that's what's up here. Um, no, there was a lot of business going on to the east. A lot of business. And it's really interesting to read about Islamic impressions of the Vikings, because we, we have plenty of writings about them. And they thought that they were incredibly skilled warriors. Uh, there was one writer that said that they had the most perfect bodies he had ever seen in his entire <laughs> life, but they were dumber than a donkey. Wow. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to unpack in that statement, but okay. It is, but I, I find there's a, a sense of familiarity there where it's kind of like, okay, there's the Vikings I know and love. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a touchstone, and that's nice once in a while. The only problem with trade with the Islamic world in particular is that Number one, it was a slightly more dangerous route. They didn't really control it as well. Bulgaria could be a little bit dangerous for them. The The Polish apparently were particularly threatening. And, um, you know, they, they were getting pretty good money for, for their, their goods. But in the 10th century, there was a financial crisis in the Islamic world. Uh, specifically, their, their silver mines dried up. And they couldn't afford luxury goods anymore. And like, yeah, they, they told the Rus uh, traders exactly what was going on. They didn't really believe them because it's kind of like, okay, sure. Yeah, you got no silver. I, I hear you. Tell me another sob story. They literally had no silver. Right. There was no interest in buying furs anymore because why do you need furs? It's the Arabian Peninsula. Also, we're in the middle of a warm period and climate change. Uh, it's extra hot. You just really don't need them. Yeah. And in terms of slaves, like, yeah, it was exotic to have white slaves, but there were cheaper slaves to be found closer to home. Um, I mean, this is a turbulent time for the borders of the Islamic world at this point in time. Uh, they were they were taking their own slaves. Just because it was more fashionable to have white slaves doesn't mean that it was worth all the extra money that they really didn't have. Right. In tough times, you'll make do with whatever slaves you can get your hands on. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah, that's the takeaway me message here. <laughs> Oh boy. Um but yeah, the the trade kind of dried up. The 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 Rus got kind of upset about it. They tried, you know, attacking. Uh didn't really go all that well. <laughs> and they know when to back down from a fight. So they really changed all of their focus to the Byzantines. Um they they called Byzantium uh Greece at this point in time. The Byzantine Empire is kind of funny that way. Like they didn't call themselves the Byzantine Empire. That's a that's a modern epithet for kind of odd society who considered themselves the Eastern Roman Empire or simply just the Roman Empire since the Western had fallen. Right. But were some of the least Roman people around at that point in time anyways because they all spoke Greek. They, you know, were looking at uh, around this time the, the, the creation of the Eastern Orthodox Church so they didn't even really respect the, 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 the Roman pope anymore yeah like there's nothing actually that 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 roman about them and really there's no greece anymore either but they're the closest thing to it you know all those greek lands are owned by the what we would call the byzantine empire so a lot of the naming conventions get really hazy around there right right but the trade route between novgorod and kiev was very secure like they had done a lot of work to make sure that that area was if not necessarily on their side, then certainly safe, you know, properly patrolled. And the trip from Kiev down to the Black Sea was 
unnavigable by most people. They still had to watch out for attacks while while they're in the portage uh, segment of the of the trips. But you know, they also gained a reputation for not really being the right people to mess with if you're just some random band of Slavic raiders. Really, their only concern was the Byzantines themselves. There was a lot of tension between uh, them and Byzantium as Kiev got bigger and bigger and gained more influence over the over the region. We're, we're talking about what today is Ukraine, right? And there were a few skirmishes between the, the groups and the, the, the Rus, being you know, Vikings at heart, took to their ships. What they weren't expecting was that the Byzantines also had ships and their ships were equipped with Greek fire, which is still actually a thing at this point in time. Are you aware of Greek fire? Have you heard of this No, stuff? I was about to ask what Greek fire is. We don't know exactly what was in it. But what we're talking about here is the 10th century equivalent of a flamethrower shooting fire that can't be put out by water. So likely something, you know, oil-based in right. some manner. Um, but we don't know what the exact formula was. So they would have these, these ships with giant pumps on them. And they would pump them up. And they would pump this, this substance. It, it was... Sounds a lot like petroleum jelly in a lot of ways. Yeah. But they would they would pump it through flames, just like a very manual version of a of a flame th- a thrower, and they would shoot this at the at the ships that the that the Rus were sailing, set them on fire. The Rus would go ahead and start bailing them, right? Like putting buckets of water on the fire and right. just spread it. Right. Because it wouldn't go out under the that's under the water. Incredible and terrifying yes uh, there weren't too many sea battles <laughs> yeah they, they learned pretty quickly that that was not uh, a fight they wanted so they you know there's there's also conventional battles at this point constantinople was put under siege a number of times which isn't really a problem for constantinople the walls there are famously daunting for any sort of land battles but they put enough fear into the the byzantines that they got fairly reasonable terms out of them. Both sides kind of walked away from this whole thing, thinking that they had gotten the better end of the deal. Right. Basil II of uh, of uh, Constantinople agreed that he would stop harassing any Rus traders, uh, that he would allow them th- free passage through any Byzantine lands, uh, and to drop basically tariffs on on any trade to promote goodwill between the two groups and vladimir the great of kiev also known as Voldemar's finaldson but you know, <laughs> well that's that's the thing though right like they're already starting to yeah, yeah. Uh, become slavic they're taking on the, the the character of the i just i love i the love land the around. norse names oh they're great yeah they're great but you know they've all they've all married slavic women they've all most of the people running kiev and rus at this point are only very technically Norse in any way. Most right. of them don't really speak the language. Not the ones that are staying in Kiev anyways. They just know that they have very dedicated trading partners up in Novgorod and uh, they'll make a lot of money if they keep sending stuff their way. And at this point, like how far are we from the founding of Novgorod, if I'm saying that correctly, and and kind of where we are now? How many years? About a century. Okay. This, this treaty happens in uh, 988. So uh, Vladimir, if you will, agrees to be baptized in the Orthodox tradition. 
And both of them are going, what a sucker. Because as far as Basil is concerned, he's just removed a major threat from his borders, which is growing Kievan Rus. And Vladimir is going, who cares about this, this Orthodox faith thing? I've got free access to one of the richest trading markets in the entire world. Right. They're both pretty good with this. As far as who actually came out better, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I find with, with treaties, everyone wants to find a, a winner. Sometimes they are actually mutually beneficial. Sometimes it just sort of works out. And I think that's the case in the short term here. But in the long term, I mean, if it wasn't for Vladimir's conversion, you wouldn't have the control over, you know, Russian specifically culture that the Orthodox Church has today without that agreement. Because up until now, they're not, they're not Christian. They're still pagan. The Norse paganism is kind of mixing with the local Slavic flavor, but they're not Christian. And there's been sort of attempts both by the Roman Catholic Church and by the Orthodox Church to romance this state at various times, both of which have been rebuffed over and over again. And so this is seen as a very uh, important cultural victory for Byzantium to convert Kiev to the Orthodox faith. And once again, like we're not, we, we, we stopped talking about Vikings somewhere in here. We're talking about people named Vladimir and the Russian Orthodox Church and the Kievan Rus state and Byzantium and all of these things that are not the horned helmets and the furs and the round shields on the dragon headed ships. Yeah. Because they stopped being Vikings. They settled in. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of. Yeah, I don't know. I definitely didn't expect to be talking about the Byzantine Empire or Kiev or anything along those lines. They're like sharks. You know, you got to keep swimming or else you drown. That whole thing. I didn't know that about sharks. Yeah, it's an old saying. I don't know how true it is. <laughs> Dude, I do, I do history, not biology. Isn't, wouldn't that be true about any fish? No, the point is that regular fish have gills that can push the water through. Oh, um, that and the sharks, gills of a shark oh, okay. are open, and it's the act of swimming that pushes the water over their gills. Wow! Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's true. I don't know. Like yeah, I said, this sounds, is not a biology show. It sounds legitimate. Show. I'm I'm learning. It sounds it sounds very true, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. I said it with a lot of confidence. Yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> I bought it. You got to keep Viking, or you're not a Viking anymore. <laughs> yeah, but I assume there are still. I mean, there are still people Viking up in in you know the oh, northern. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure, but these are these are Vikings. Like you don't have Kievan Rus without, um, yeah, without Swedish Vikings. Yeah, this whole Kiev thing sounds kind of like a, a spinoff. That like, I mean, you can you know you can care about it if you want to, but it's not. And, you're not talking about the same and that, group of people anymore. That spinoff is the Russian Federation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a pretty big spinoff, man. Right, but I mean, like, it's not. It's it's if you were a fan of like the original Vikings, right? This is kind of totally removed i don't know those those early russians man (laughs) you take you take vikings and slavs and put them together and that is a that is a formidable pair that is quite the tag team (laughs) yeah it's a nice little uh nice little crossover episode it's pretty good and it it gets you russia which is about where i would have expected that to get you (laughs) one one more footnote to this sort of trade agreement with byzantium is that uh, another one of the fairly small 
relatively speaking terms that was included with it is that Basil was dealing with a lot of different conflicts when he made this agreement, which is part of the reason he was so excited to actually get the the Kievan Rus off of his off of his plate. He had a number of other issues going on. Kiev agreed to send six thousand troops to help support Basil militarily, which probably made the difference between him completely losing the throne and maintaining his position as ruler. Right. He was so paranoid because it was it was mostly internal threats. There were coup attempts that were happening at this point in time. He was so paranoid about anyone from Byzantium that he actually made these people his personal guard. And they ended up calling the Rus Varangians, which is based on the like it's a it's a a Greek version of the Swedish words for sworn men. And it's this idea that they weren't necessarily mercenaries. Like it's not as though this is just some random roving band of, of raiders that they're hiring on. Right. There's this actual commitment. There's this sworn fealty to the, uh, to, well, to the Roman emperor. That's what he called himself, but they're still not quite Byzantine. And, they called this group the Varangian Guard, and this would actually persist for another 500 years or so, all with, um, or, or at least for the first 100 years, all with troops sent from Rus, for whatever reason. Later on, there would be Vikings, interestingly enough, from various places in the uh, sort of Viking sphere of influence that would come to help make up the Varangian Guard. And so you would see Norman or or Irish or uh, Swedish or Norse or Danish influences in the Varangian Guard right inside the walls of Constantinople up until the 15th century. They would continue serving the the emperor of Constantinople. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, the, the Rus lost all of their Norse characteristics. They became entirely slavic and it's not even just like you know well they took on the language and like this and that it's like there's no there's virtually no evidence of these people having ever been norse to the point that there's arguments over whether or not the rus were swedish or not right there's no there's no remnants in culture there's no remnants in law there's not really uh, an unusual number of borrow words in their language Names don't tend to survive other than in completely uh, Slavic variations on Norse names. You had a lot more Vladimir's and not that many Valdemar's. Right. So. So is that kind of typical then? I mean, could you could you tell a variation of that story like like dozens of times when it comes to Vikings and and say like, well, this group came and and established a town here or took over a city here and then became ingrained in the local culture and kind of disappeared yes yeah this is one of the first times today that i've been able to say categorically yes yeah it's absolutely what happened that's what happened in dublin which we talked about last time that's what happened in uh, the north of scotland that's what happened in normandy that's what happened virtually everywhere else that they settled wow Mm -hmm. make a great tv show it made made a fantastic (laughs) tv show there's there's one there's one main place that or, or well more than one there's a couple of places where that Norse uh, tradition continued on a little bit more strongly though 
and I absolutely want to get to those ones, but I think we should probably take a break and talk about those next time. All right. The Viking experiences to the east show their range and versatility, but it's hardly what we tend to associate with the word. What about Iceland, or longships, or raids on the English coast? Next time, we'll delve into those more familiar aspects of Viking life. That episode will be up on December 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.